Welcome to the 42nd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Margaret, also known as Peggy Goodell, from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Peggy, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You received your bachelor's at Imperial College of Science and Technology in London, England in 1986 with honors. You then went to earn your PhD at the University of Cambridge in 1991. You then completed your postdoc in Richard Mulligan's lab at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard Medical School. And in 1997, you joined the faculty of the Department of Pediatrics, Molecular and Human Genetics and Immunology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? I was always very interested in biology as a kid, and I used to read books, and uh, I was given a little chemistry set by my grandmother and other things that were biologically oriented, and so I gravitated towards science in general, a very curious kid, a little bit nerdy, and I, when I went to college, I really wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to do science, but I wasn't sure whether it was going to be biology or astrophysics, which I was also interested in. And after a couple of years, I realized that it was going to be biology. But I still really had no concept of what that meant. Like I enjoyed biology, but I didn't know what it meant to do research or to be a professor or to be in an academic institution. And so that took quite a while to sort of find my path in that way. To speak about your science uh, that centers around basic mechanisms of hematopoietic stem cell regulation, and how a misregulation of these processes can lead to disease. Um, in the early days of your research career, you focused on and developed methods to isolate hematopoietic stem cells. Um, but first, uh, could you give a little introduction to hematopoietic stem cells and into their function? Because our listeners might not be <laughs> familiar with stem cells in general. Sure, sure. Hematopoietic stem cells really captivated me when I was thinking about doing a postdoc, and I realized that they could regenerate the entire blood. When I was looking for a postdoc, actually, it was the early days of people thinking about doing gene therapy. And so the idea was that if you really wanted to modify something semi-permanently or permanently, you really had to go for the stem cells because you could make a modification in the downstream cells, but those are used up essentially, and they die relatively quickly, either within days or months. And so that the only way to have a permanent change, like if you wanted to cure sickle cell anemia, you really needed to do that in the stem cell and put that back into the bone marrow. And then all the cells that would get that would be regenerated after that would have that correction. So I thought they were, they had all this uh, amazing potential. And so the stem cell really in, uh, generates all of the different cell types in the bone marrow and in the blood, which depending on how you want to slice it, there's at least a dozen well-characterized cell types. And then there are subtypes of some of those, such as, you know, many subtypes of, of T cells. So uh, the stem cell really gives rise to all of those over time and continuously regenerates the bone marrow. The stem cells differentiate, but they also have a job to maintain themselves. And to some extent, they do that by sitting around and doing nothing, 
or or being dormant, as some people as 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 I think is a very helpful term. But they do turn over, they do divide, and they occasionally make new copies of themselves in a process called self-renewal. So that's really the two jobs of the stem cell in the bone marrow. So when I understood this correctly, so there is like not a single cell that can uh, can regenerate like every single cell in the body, but there are different stem cells that can create cells of the blood system and then create uh, cells from other organs? Or is there like a... a, a, a yeah. I think you call it pluripotent stem cells, right? Who can right. make all types of cells? Right. That's a great question. The Often when we think of stem cells, we think of the pluripotent stem cells. And those are made either, those are, are generated from the early blastocyst, which is a cell that can then make all of the cells of the embryo, or they're induced pluripotent stem cells by introducing genes that reprogram an adult cell, and then those cells also have the potential to make any cell in the body. Both of those cells, though, are really transient, and the iPS cells are really an artifact of science. And even the embryonic-type stem cells don't stay around for the, for the length of the adult. And so some tissues, in fact, most tissues, but not all, are seeded with a tiny number of these stem cells called adult stem cells or somatic stem cells, which then are able to regenerate that tissue. The key difference is that they're really restricted to regenerate that tissue. And with very rare exceptions, they don't go outside of those boundaries. So the bone marrow stem cell generates the blood and the muscle stem cell generates the, blus the, the muscle and so on. So coming to your first paper, if I understood the abstract of this uh, paper correctly, uh, where you described the isolation method, um, you were not looking for an isolation method uh, in the first place. Is that correct? That's correct. It's fun that you dug up this ancient history, which, which is still one of my favorite papers. It's incredibly highly cited, which I'm proud of but also was a time that I remember so clearly because of the discovery that I made in the laboratory. And you sometimes see something and it's really an epiphany and it's a really exciting moment that you, in a way you remember for the rest of your life. So I was trying to, for gene therapy purposes, I was trying to get stem cells out of the bone marrow and make them um, select those cells that were dividing because those would be the easiest to modify with a retrovirus or similar uh, modifying agent. And we figured that of the stem cells, there would be a tiny subset that would be dividing and then I would isolate them. And so this Hooks dye that I was using, you could use to stain viable cells and different amounts of dye bind the DNA. And so you could identify which cells have more DNA because they're an S phase or G2M. And so the whole idea was to put the stem cells on the flow cytometer and select those that were dividing and, and use those to um, gene modify. But when I put them on the flow cytometer, I had this really strange pattern and it really didn't make sense. And it was because of a just a chance um, event in the flow cytometry lab, I wanted to look at multiple dyes and markers simultaneously, and the flow cytometer wasn't really set up to do that. And I had these long talks with the guy who was running it, and I said, well, can't we rearrange the cytometer and move these lasers around and adjust all these parameters? And he said, well, you know, maybe, maybe. And sure enough, so we, I came in one day and he'd set it up. And that's when we were able to really look at this dye along with other markers at the same time and saw this really strange pattern. So by... Uh, we had ideas about what this strange pattern 
looked meant and really didn't understand it. And it took several weeks. And then late one night, I was analyzing the data uh, in the on the computer after we'd already collected all of the data events. And if you've done flow cytometry, what you do is you take this little gate that um, selects certain cells. And I was moving it around on the populations to try to figure out what the markers were, the the, flow, the cell surface markers were, were on these populations. And all of a sudden, I realized when I moved it into this area that I thought was just rubbish, it was like stardust. It was a tiny little portion of the screen that mostly we had been excluding because we thought they were dead cells. When I moved this gate there, I realized that all those cells had stem cell markers. And it was just this magic moment. And I literally remember being there and understanding the implications of that. Now, then I had to test it by the next day, going back and sorting the cells from there and transplanting them into mice. Because the bottom line is when you take those cells, what is their function? How do they behave? And so by going back again with live cells, instead of just an analysis of it, I could select them, purify them, transplant them into irradiated mice. And then I found that they gave rise to all of the blood cells. And then there was a whole series of follow-up experiments that just confirmed that. So it was a really fabulous way to purify the stem cells that had been completely unanticipated. So what is then the big advantage of this method be so that you really get this pure um, population of stem cells that are able to regenerate this uh, blood system? Yes. So by now... I mean, during that time, there were a number of people that were trying to develop different ways to purify stem cells. And so it's now become superseded by quicker methods that are based solely on antibodies and cell surface markers. But at the time, it was probably the most or close to the most uh, uh, pure population that you could you could get from flow cytometer of the stem cells. And... So that was an advantage, the level of purity that you could get. I still think that it has features that the other purification methods don't have, that there's still some interesting aspects in there that we could discover new science because of it. So I guess, so that kind of leads us a little into the epigenetic story. So what this, this purification method is called, we call it the side population because it was these cells that were on the side of this flow cytometry plot or SP, we call them. And it's this very uh, sort of iconic image uh, that people who know my work will know this image of, of this, uh, the SP. And uh, what was interesting, one of the experiments that I did is most of the time when you do flow cytometry, you see a nice little round ball of cells, um, of single cells that are all, they're scattered, but they're still clustered in a little ball. But what the SP is, is, is spread out in a little line on the flow cytometry plot. And what that means is that the cells within there, within that population have, have different amounts of dye, okay? They've absorbed different amounts of dye. It turns out that actually they're pumping out the dye. So some of the cells pump out more of the dye than other cells. And that's the basis of the purification. It's not really that it goes in and binds the DNA. It does bind the DNA. But what you're really measuring when you're purifying stem cells with this method is the ability of the cells to pump out the dye. Okay. So 
seeing the little line, I thought, well, they all have the markers of stem cells. They all look like stem cells, but some of them pump out the dye better than others. So does that mean there are other properties? Do they have functional properties that are different? Right. So, so I separated them on the basis of the dye pumping and transplanted those in. And sure enough, I found out that the ones that pumped out the dye the best were the best stem cells. And the ones that pump it out a little bit less are also good stem cells. They're just not quite as good. So there's clear functional differences. So, this so Hux that was... Hux died, it, it binds, does it bind DNA? I mean, because if agents bind to the DNA, it, I think they still damage the DNA, right? So doesn't the purification uh, somehow damage the cells? It could. We never found any evidence for that. Um, I we never were able to really exclude the fact that that could slightly account for the difference in function, but, uh, but there's other clues that it's not just that, but it's a great question. Definitely. So later it's, then in, in 2004, yeah. you and Shannon McKinney Freeman published a paper titled circulating hematopoietic stem cells do not efficiently home to bone marrow during homeostasis. Um, so what did that then tell you about how the hematopoietic stem cells behave? Well, there was a lot of interest in that time. Um, so as I mentioned a moment ago, the main difference between embryonic stem cells and somatic stem cells is there that somatic stem cells are restricted to differentiate into the tissue from which they're derived, as opposed to embryonic stem cells, which can generate anything. But After I set up my lab, there was a lot of interest in other kinds of somatic stem cells and questioning whether they were ever able to cross that boundary of, of being in the tissue from which they're derived. And so we started looking at whether you could generate or identify blood-forming stem cells in the muscle or in the uh, – or muscle-derived cells from the blood and so on and so forth, whether they ever did cross the boundaries. And to cut us a long story short, it looks like they really are maintained within their boundaries, but hematopoietic stem cells do circulate to some extent, and you can find them in these other tissues. But they're really never as good as the stem cells that you can get from the bone marrow. Yeah. So kind of an approach in trying to get like stem cells from another source or like the iPSCs or is what is this just to test like if they cross the boundaries? The original goal was to try to understand whether they crossed the boundaries. But then when we realized that you saw blood forming stem cells in these other tissues and locations, it, it turned out that it was really just because they were circulating and, okay. and going to these places as, as, as a, you know, it was their summer vacation, basically. <laughs> so then in the late 2000s, you then began also to focus on stem cells, stem cell aging, and also the epigenetic part of this process. Um, how do hematopoietic stem cells age? And what is the epigenetic contribution to that? Right. The aging topic has been one that people in the hematopoiesis field have been interested in for a long time. And it's something that I have been curious about as well. And what's sort of a conundrum in the, the mouse stem cell aging field and the hematopoiesis field 
is that with age, if you look at purifying stem cells out of young versus old mice, you actually get more stem cells. So this is kind of counterintuitive. You'd think that you should, you should use up stem cells over time. But in fact, if you look in the bone marrow of aged versus young mice, you see more of these stem cells. But we wondered whether they were the, had the same um, quality as the young stem cells or not. And so we, again, transplanted them into mice and then asked whether they were able to generate uh, blood forming cells. And the aged stem cells, even though there are apparently more of them, they are lower in quality and they cannot generate blood as well. But they basically look the same. You really can't tell any difference from them uh, on the cell surface or any other major feature. So then we got interested in what the molecular differences would be that would account for that. And we've done a number of studies, first mostly bulk, um, uh, well, we did microarray analysis in the old days before there was RNA sequencing uh, to look at genes that were differentially expressed between the young and the old stem cells. And then we've used newer and newer technologies over time to look at the differences. The interesting thing is that everyone kind of hoped that stem cells would be protected from age, but in fact, they're not. They age just like all the other tissues in the body. And in fact, many of the, the markers that go up in, the aged, in aged brains or in aged muscles are the same exact markers that change dramatically with age in a mouse hematopoietic stem cell. So they're really not protected at all. So what do you think? Where do these uh, changes come from? Is it because they also divide or how, how much do they divide? Um, do they also express like the telomerase to protect the telomeres from, from getting shorter? Um, or what do you think is the, the cause that, yeah, they also age or show features of aging at least? I would say that's still one of the major questions of the field. One of the hallmarks of the stem cells that we noticed is that they seem to be responding to an inflammatory microenvironment. So they had a lot of hallmarks of, of, of being, of, of uh, responding to inflammation. And there's kind of a term that's been suggested in the literature called inflammaging, which I think mostly reflects the fact that this is a very common phenomenon that you can see when you look at many different aging tissues. Um, maybe partly related to obesity, which is known to be a pro-inflammatory state, but it's probably just not that simple because these older mice aren't necessarily obese, but they still have this state of inflammation in many of their tissues that then affects the stem cells in many tissues. But you also did epigenomic profiling, right, of young versus aged uh, hematopoietic stem cells. Um, what did you find there? We found that there's a lot of changes that you see similar to cancer cells. So you see some hypermethylation, DNA methylation. You see changes in regions of um, H3K27 trimethylation, the repressive polycomb mark. Those, some of those regions expand. And some of the regions... Um, that are marking expressed genes, highly expressed genes also expand. And that is consistent with the phenotype that we see of aged hematopoietic stem cells. What we think is that the aged hematopoietic stem cells actually acquire increased self-renewal capacity. So they can make more stem cells better 
then they differentiate. And the epigenetic marks that are acquired are basically consistent with that, reinforcing the program, reinforcing the stem cell program away from the differentiation program. So meaning that, or supporting the notion that um, there are more stem cells uh, in old uh, mice than young cells. Exactly. Supporting the notion that there are more stem cells in the old mice, but they are less functional. Because the stem cells, if they're going to do their job, they really have to be able to differentiate to make all of those blood cells that you need. Yeah. That you need. If you're a runner or if you have an injury or if you have an infection, you know, you, you need to continuously make all those blood cells. So, the, so that, that epigenetic program really seems to reinforce the switch in, 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 a, in the not so positive way the ability to make more stem cells at the expense of making these differentiated cells, which you really need. Yeah. So I think I have interrupted you um, like 15 minutes ago when you were talking about your, your purification method and um, about the, the ability of the cells pumping out the Hux dye. Um, do you want to continue on that? Like, because I think this leads to my next question anyway. Sure. As I mentioned, I was really curious about how you could have these stem cells that were marked by the hooks to die that basically look the same otherwise by cell surface markers, but they had slightly different amounts of the dye and slightly different abilities to engraft in mice. So slightly better stem cells or worse stem cells. And yet otherwise they looked pretty much the same. So we wondered whether we could identify slight differences in gene expression that would account for these functional differences. So we purified those and looked at gene expression profiles of these very slightly different cells. Single cell so technology. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. So sorry, sorry. Well, uh, single I cell technology was not available at the time. Exactly. So we did, right. Yes, which is amazing. That's what we would love to go back and do now. <laughs> But instead, we did bulk RNA sequencing. Actually, I think we even did microarray analysis um, on these two populations and then found a few hundred genes that were different between them. Now, there are a lot of interesting differences, and many of them we could have studied, but there were two postdocs that were looking over these gene lists together because we wanted to then, we had these 300 genes that were different, and we wanted to know, well, which ones were driving this functional difference. And so we decided to test them by taking knockout mice and, you know, seeing whether they had differences in stem cell activity. So, This is, again, a, member, a moment I really remember um, in my career because the postdocs came, with, came to me with this list and they pointed to these couple of genes on the list and they said, well, I think we should study these because somebody else in the department has them. They're interesting knockout mice and you know, they're part of epigenetic regulation. And I said, huh, I don't really know anything about <laughs> epigenetic regulation. And the genes were DNMT3A, and DNMT3B, so DNA methyltransferase 3A and 3B. And one of them was more highly expressed in the population that had the best stem cell activity. And the other one was slightly higher expressed in the other population. So it kind of was interesting because there are these you know, sister genes and we could imagine this nice hypothesis about how they were differentially regulating <clears throat> these uh, the ability of these different stem cells, slightly different stem cells to repopulate. So we got the knockout mice and bred them to our 
Cree drivers so that we could knock them out just in stem cells and then started this whole series of transplants that led to the really exciting finding that we really stumbled upon. And I'll just really emphasize that we just picked these genes off of this list. I really didn't know much about them, but the postdocs knew more about them than I did. Exactly. And then we had this wonderful, um, really surprising phenotype, which again, to make a long story short, um, the, the bottom line is that for DNMT3A, when you ablate it in stem cells and you let them divide a few times, those stem cells lose their ability to differentiate and instead gain the ability to self-renew. And it was even more dramatic than what we saw with aging, so that over time, you could have tremendous self-renewal capacity of the stem cells at the expense of differentiation. And so what that meant is that DNMT3A was really a gatekeeper, was really important for allowing stem cells to differentiate that, uh, to differentiate. And without that, they just stay in this stem cell state potentially forever. So the involvement of DNMT3s, so A and B, means that methylation is at, at play here, right? So DNA methylation is, um, yeah, has a role in stem cell regulation uh, somehow. Um, so what is the difference between DNMT3A and B functionally, as a, and not not like in the phenotype, but what do they do? And yeah, is it then like genome-wide or do they have like specific genes that they regulate? We don't really know the difference between 3A and 3B to this day, because it turns out that 3A has a much more dramatic role and that 3B seems to augment that role a little bit in the stem cells. So we kind of put 3B to the side and have not really studied that in, in greater depth. It's also consistent with the fact that it was discovered really at the same time that we were doing these studies in the stem cells. When, so we were doing these studies in the stem cells and we had no idea that, that there was any cl clinical relevance to this finding whatever whatsoever. Obviously a very dramatic phenotype from a basic science standpoint that you can make tons and tons of stem cells don't differentiate, but there was nothing in the literature that suggested any relevance whatsoever. People had mostly studied these genes in the context of development. They were considered developmental regulators for the program of, of uh, embryonic development but they hadn't been focused on uh, in the adult. And then as we were in the process of trying to get this paper published, the first paper started coming out in the leukemia field showing that DNMT3A is one of the most commonly mutated genes in adult leukemias. Okay, yeah. Which would make sense because then they, they would divide, right? So um, this would... Exactly, right. And so we think that this property of the relevance of DNMT3A to allow differentiation is part of why it shows up in leukemia all the time. Because if you if it gets mutated in a stem cell in an adult, then uh, it inhibits the differentiation and that that contributes to the leukemia development. Yeah. So I think then this would be a good uh, therapeutic target, right? Did you also work on that? In theory, it's a good therapeutic target, but it's a tumor suppressor that gets mutated. Oh, okay. And so you would have to find a way to augment its function or replace its function. So there, there might be ways that one could think about that, but it's a little bit harder than the approach of knocking out a, an oncogene or something yeah, like that. Yeah. 
So when there is DNA methylation, then you don't have to look far to find DNA demethylation. Um, so hence, you more recently, you also looked at uh, TET activity in hematopoietic stem cells. So what is the function of the TET enzymes here and how do they work in combination with the DNMTs? That's a great question. We are not really experts in TET and I don't study it heavily, but I study what it does in conjunction with DNMT3A. So what we were curious about is where DNMT3A acts in the genome. And I guess I'll just step back and say and make one more point. Although I really stumbled into this whole field of epigenetics, once I found this gene and its role in hematopoietic stem, cell, stem cells, I was absolutely captivated because of, of the fundamental role that DNA methylation can have in gene regulation. And so this just really... Um, made me extremely interested in this field. And we, uh, I redirected a number of people in the lab to start working on this. So now it's one of the major things that my lab works on, always in the context of blood development. But uh, we, we dropped some of the other directions that we were interested in in the lab to really work on DNMT3A. So when you knock out DNMT3A and you look in the stem cells, the normal stem cells versus the knockout stem cells, you see that there are slight changes in DNA methylation. It doesn't get erased throughout the entire genome. It really gets erased mostly in these certain places. And one of the places that we focused on is these regions of, of large regions of low DNA methylation that we called canyons because they're really um, 25 KB in length of very low DNA methylation, sort of like a very giant CPG island with very, very low methylation. So when you look at the knockout cells and you ask, where's the methylation lost? It's always at the edges of these large canyons. It's just eroded at the edges. So if you think about it as, a, um, as part of a landscape, think about as a river goes through and the river, if there's more and more water, the river erodes that canyon and makes the canyon bigger and bigger over time. And so this is the way to visualize that concept of, of the DNA methylation canyons and what happens when you lose DNA methylation. It's not like more directed, but just like a physical function because it's anywhere lost and then it gets lost progressively on, on those edges. Sort of, yes. So then what I was curious about is why is it it's so specific at these edges, right? Why isn't it just on the, the, the plateaus of, you know, the rest of the genome? And at that time also, it was the early days after TET2 function had been discovered and it had been realized that um, the TET proteins modify DNA methylation and make hydroxymethylation. And that hydroxymethylation wasn't, isn't maintained as a methylation mark by DNMT1 when the cells divide. And so I realized that if that hydroxymethylation was at those edges of those canyons, then, then when the cells divided, that the methylation mark would not be maintained and that that was a mechanism to explain that erosion. So in other words, if you, you have that river and it's the soft banks of the river and the hydroxymethylation is at those soft banks, right? And so... If, if you don't have something to protect those edges, then it just erodes and erodes every time the cells divide. And that hydroxymethylation is, by the, is done by the TET proteins right at the edges of those canyons. 
And you only find the hydroxymethylation at those edges? Well, you find it, if you look genome-wide, you definitely find it at other places, such as in enhancers, um, and those are biologically relevant as well. But because we were so interested in the canyons, that's really where we're focusing on, okay. because that's where you're losing methylation so dramatically with the DNMT3A knockout. And what is the function then? Is it just like a function of time that you lose those, uh, the or the TET activity? Well... I I think that it's a system of regulation of the genes that are associated with those canyons. And this is something we really don't fully understand and will be the focus of some of my research over the next five years or so. What we know is that you lose methylation at these canyons, and many of these canyons have genes that are important for self-renewal and stem cell regulation. And that does affect their gene expression a little bit. They become even more highly expressed. But we don't really understand why that leads to infinite self-renewal and cancer. Okay, so this is, this is my um, sort of uh, hypothesis about it. What, what fascinates me about the relationship between DNMT3A and TET2 that are both sort of acting at the edges of these canyons to maintain this is that it's an amazing way to regulate the state of that canyon when the cells divide. So if you wanted to, let's say, turn off that canyon or turn on the canyon, if you, if you want to turn off the gene in the canyon, all you have to do is get rid of, the, rid of the TET protein that's there and you'll get more and more methylation. And if you want to turn on the canyon more, then get rid of DNMT3A and, you'll, and TET2 will help promote expression in that canyon. And so the two of them are sort of playing this waiting game. I'm here, you're here, I'm here, you're here. And as long as they're both there, you maintain the status quo and nothing really changes. But as soon as you get rid of one, you can change the state or bias that stem cell either towards differentiation or towards self-renewal. So that's kind of my hypothesis. Yeah. So this is what you're what you're looking at right now, right? So maybe also looking at chromatin structure and histone modifications that are at these locations, and just check: is it open chromatin? Is it closed? Is it more accessible, or something like that? Exactly. Yes, and we've recently been looking at three um, D interactions. And we see that these canyons actually are sites of long-range interactions. So some of these canyons are many, many megabases apart, and yet you can see them interacting together in, in three-dimensional space. So that's really exciting. So we, we still don't know what these canyon features really mean, what they really are, except for really important sites of, of gene regulation. So hopefully we'll understand that in the future. Maybe also pointing to enhance or promote interactions. Possibly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So to finish off this uh, interview, I have two more general questions. The first one, um, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end uh, or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? I mean, you have shared some success stories, but were there also some like stories of mi yeah, minor success? <laughs> yes, I think there's always things like that. There's... There's, we, we, many of us have, you know, more ideas than we can possibly work on. And I do think there are times when you have to set an idea aside. You think the idea is right, but you don't really know 
how to either get it funded or to push it forward or you kind of reach a dead end. And I have projects like that that I sort of temp- have at least have temporarily given up on. I still think that they're important projects that I would like to return to someday, maybe when the technology is right. Um, there was an interesting project that's related all- to all of this. When we were looking at gene expression in the stem cells, we found that imprinted genes were very highly expressed in stem cells and not in differentiated cells. And this pattern of high expression of imprinted genes can also be seen during um, postnatal growth in tissues. So you can grind up a liver or uh, the lung and you can see that this group of about 10 or 20 imprinted genes is very highly expressed and then they're shut down when, when the animal stops growing. This has been done in mice. And so I noticed that that same pattern of genes was expressed in stem cells. So we've published a paper in PLOS One that suggests that this this group of genes that dictates, these imprinted genes are sort of a license to grow. Uh, Stem cells have a license to grow and you have a license to grow postnatally, but not forever. And so this, we were trying to really study this in stem cells. I love the idea. I'm still fascinated by imprinted genes, not least because they are also regulated by DNA methylation. But I kind of hit a hit a wall in terms of the approaches that we could use to unravel that problem and understand really how they're regulating growth and whether they really are a license to grow. So it's something that I'd like to come back to again in the future. Um, right now, it's just sitting there as a quiet little paper and. Um, some people read it, and maybe we'll come back to it someday. Oh, I see. So in the last 40 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give us a short summary about your, or what you consider your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? The, I think for, for young scientists out there, what is exciting about science is being able to stumble into an area that you don't anticipate. And that's really the story about DNMT3A for me. And I think there's other important things that I've done in my career, but I think it's going to be the most important. And what's been fun is discovering not just how it um, plays a role in regulating stem cells, but it led us to explore genome biology, gene regulation, DNA methylation and histone modifications and those relationships. These are areas that 20 years ago when I started my lab, I never ever could have imagined that I would go in that direction. So that's just been a really fun journey. And and that's an act of choice you have to make as a scientist because you can have a surprising discovery and you can say, well, that's really interesting, but it's not for me. I've really got to focus on this path that I've been going down. Or you can say, this is an opportunity and this is really amazing. And even though I don't know anything about it, I'm just going to go down that road and see where it takes me. So that's been a a wonderful, uh, it's been a wonderful project. And uh, it's it's a great example, I think, of, of how you can be led in science. And really, it's the privilege of being in science that you can take the road less traveled and just do different things in different decades of your career. And if you look back now, it's really amazing to see that this all goes uh, or stems from your very first paper, right? 
at least what I found. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Yes, and and that is fun to reflect on as well. Yeah. yeah. And if you and if you uh, look back at it now, it seems like you planned it all the way. <laughs> But actually, I can tell the story that way, but definitely yeah. not. Yes. So thank you very much for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. This was the 42nd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotive.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motive blog, Motivations, at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.